Goddag, mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg, og velkommen til langsomme samtaler om verdenssituationen. Du har måske, kære lytter, hørt om elefantgrafen. Om den graf, der er formet som en elefant, som forklarer ulighed og globalisering på én gang. En enkel figur, der fortæller, hvorfor de rige i Vesten er blevet rigere, og de fattige i Asien er blevet meget rigere. Men hvorfor den samme udvikling har skabt fattigdom i middelklassen i Vesten. Altså en graf, der faktisk viser globaliseringens vindere og tabere og giver globaliseringens samlede billede. En graf, der får os til at forstå, hvorfor Kina stormer frem, og hvorfor USA er ved at blive reddet i stykker. Ja, det er alt det, som elefantgrafen kan. Og den økonom, der har lavet elefantgrafen, han hedder Branko Milanovic. Og jeg er så heldig, at vores ven Branko Milanovic i den her uge har valgt at tale med mig. Good evening and welcome to our viewers here in Denmark and good afternoon and especially welcome to you Branko Milanovic. I believe you're in New York, isn't that correct? Thank you very much Rune. It's a pleasure to be there as it as it were. Uh, I'm actually in Washington DC, so not far from New York, but uh, it's a little bit more pleasant here because it's greener. Og han lover at svare på alle de store spørgsmål, som for eksempel pandemien nu skaber den større ulighed. Ulighed, hvornår bliver det til et problem? Hvad er det for en kapitalisme, de har i Kina? Og hvad er det for en kapitalisme, vi har i Vesten? Og hvad for en form for kapitalisme kommer til at vinde? Alle de spørgsmål og mange flere vil han besvare klart entydigt overbevisende i den samtale, jeg har med ham nu. Det kommer til at gå rigtig hurtigt. Jeg vil også godt advare nu at der kommer nogle Karl Marx-citater, men der er ingen, der har taget skade af nogle Karl Marx-citater. God fornøjelse. But I want to start off with a point in your latest book, which is absolutely wonderful, Capitalism Alone. I can recommend it to everyone. It's a wonderful book. You you say that capitalism is now the globally dominant ideology and political system the only one left and there is no alternative. There's just varieties of capitalism, which you explore in the book. But I I was thinking you have the rare, which must now be a kind of historical privilege to grow up in a society that wasn't capitalist. You grew up in Tito, Yugoslavia. And and I was wondering, I would love to hear you now saying, what did you think of capitalism when you were growing up in a country that wasn't capitalist and that was something abroad for you? Well, that's a, that's a very good question. Uh, it, it does. It is true. I think that there is an advantage of having had uh, different experiences, simply because they push you to look at things some from slightly different angle. Now, uh, you asked me a difficult question. It's, it, I have really to remember uh, exactly what I thought uh, when I was, I suppose, 17 or 21 or so on. I would say that there were several, maybe somewhat contradictory things. First, I was very much influenced by Marxism. And when you study Marx as a, in the beginning of your economics classes, I have to say that it always remains for you. It's a little bit like a, like a religion, you know, uh, because uh, uh, it has this grandiose view of the economics as explaining the fate of mankind. And when you start studying neoclassical economics or the economics that are studied now, you are totally disappointed. You know, you see the <laughs> 
studying what is the cost of a bottle of water, you know, are, are the chairs more expensive than tables? <laughs> I mean, what is this? You know, we actually want to study how the humankind is going to evolve, what will be infrastructure, superstructure, how, you know, ideology is going to be shaped by these relations of production. So there is always this disappointment. So that's actually uh, one thing. Secondly, on the negative side, there are two things which I think were obvious to me and, and to most of my friends at that time. First of all, that capitalist societies were democratic societies and uh, societies in which we grew up were not. They of course varied, you know, certainly the Soviet Union was not the same as Albania. Albania was not the same as Yugoslavia. You know, Yugoslavia was an open country and actually the support for Titoist regime was, was very strong. But nevertheless, we knew there was actually a limit to what you could say and you had no political parties. So that was a negative thing. And another one which was negative was essentially that economic development was higher in, um, in capitalist countries, partly because of historical reasons, but partly I would say because from the late 60s and people have studied that since uh, there was a slowdown in growth in socialist countries. So the gap between the, the more developed capitalist countries in Europe and socialist countries increased. So it's not just a historical prejudice on my part to, to imagine that you thought that capitalist countries were more free and more prosperous. I, I thought so actually, and but you know, it is very difficult to generalize because I had friends, I have to say that, who were from different uh, political angles. First of all, Yugoslavia, as you know, as we found out afterwards with the civil war, was very divided uh, ethnically. So everybody basically thought, a little bit like the European Union today, everybody thought that actually somebody else is exploiting them. So, you know, so there was this uh, sort of axis of disappointment, which had nothing to do necessarily with the regime, but it had to do with, you know, sort of ethnic constituencies. And then also I had friends who were very much on the sort of Stalinist left. And then I had friends and who remained actually for their whole life, very liberal. So, you know, I was somewhere in between because my view I have to say was social democratic from the beginning. So these Stalinist friends always used to give me lots of grief. On the other hand, they were impressed with my knowledge of um, Marxist or communist history. So then that would actually play in my favor. <laughs> So when was the first time that you came to a capitalist country and what was that like? Well, I was relatively young because I did my high school in Belgium. So that was in, uh, uh, you know, I was like 14 when I came to, to Belgium. So that was, uh, um, I was young. Uh, but one thing which actually I noticed in, in Belgium in my class, I was in a public school that it was uh, in terms of class stratification, much more stratified than our class in Belgrade. Uh, you know, you actually, and when we started, maybe 17, 18 people started dating each other and so on. It was very uh, uh, stratified in the sense that the kids uh, who were, whose parents were, and we knew that who is whose parent, you know, uh, lawyers or doctors were actually dating each other. Uh, so, and the parties were also stratified uh, until the last year of high school when it became, I think, because, you know, people are then young and that was the time of the sexual and otherwise revolutions in the, you know, in the early 70s. And then the, this certification, I think, actually kind of uh, collapsed and uh, the university already days were, were different. So, but uh, that was my impression in the high school.
Oh, that's very interesting. Then you worked for, I believe, a couple of decades as director of the IMF. And I must admit here that we've been very critical of IMF at this newspaper. And we've- well, I have to say that it was actually the World Bank and I was not such a top directors that you mentioned. I simply work as a, as a lead economist in the, in the, in the research department. But uh, you know, whether it is IMF or the World Bank, I'm sure you must have been critical re with regard to both of them. Yes, we were looking at it from a very ideological point of view that you were all the Washington consensus. But what I'm curious about is that you started studying inequality at a time when it wasn't as common as it is today. Actually, how I remember it, people weren't talking that much about equality 20, yeah. 25 years ago. Why did you start studying inequality? You, you know, it's actually, I started studying it, my dissertation in Yugoslavia because I did my PhD in Belgrade uh, was um, economic inequality in Yugoslavia. It was published as a book in 1987. Now, the reason why I start, started studying is because I, in economics, I, in those days, I was fairly reasonably good in mathematics and I started actually studying statistics. And then suddenly these two interests, as I mentioned to you, a more social interest and sort of Marxist <laughs> kind of view of the world combined with mathematics. And actually for the first time when I saw that people could actually draw uh, the distribution curve, you know, log normal, you know, curve. And I saw it for the first time. And then I said, well, there was like all the, uh, toolkit which existed with it, which of course I was then discovering with Lorenz curve, Gini coefficient, tail coefficient, all of that. That was a revelation for me because I suddenly said, well, you know, we can empirically study class relations and incomes of people. And that's something which has stayed with me for forever, actually. I just want to mention, you mentioned very kindly capitalism alone, but really one of the, I think, main ideas behind capitalism alone is studying uh, class structure and studying incomes of individuals empirically. So that was something that really, um, that's how it brought the, for me, these two things together. So that was the, you know, the, the, the beginning of my interest. So it goes very, I mean, far back. Just one last thing is that actually there were so few people in Eastern Europe who worked with household surveys and with income inequality and with such numbers. So there was like probably like 10 or 15 people in total. So, so what do you think happened? It's obviously that, that, that some books came out, Thomas Piketty's book came out and your own book was very, very influential when it came out, uh, the, the book I mentioned before, Global Inequality. It seems also to me that something changed after the financial crisis, that inequalities were exposed to a more alarming extent. And now it's like inequality is something that people talk about in Davos even and in governments all over the world. Why do you think that focus changed apart from the fact that inequality had been decreasing for decades? Yes, it's actually the, the, something changed. And I totally agree with you. The, the, the financial crisis was the big, trigger. Uh, I think what changed is that until the financial crisis, there was this belief, particularly strong in the United States, that basically um, the middle class is growing and in, that essentially you can borrow, even if it was well known that, of course, the, the median wage had been, you know, constant for 30 years. But uh, women's participation rates went up, so household incomes went up on account of that, and then borrowing came in. And as you know, of course, people borrowed really 
for, I mean, basically with no income at all, were able to get housing. Uh, the Bush administration uh, uh, encouraged that by, by essentially uh, letting people borrow any amount. And then eventually the crisis hit. And I think this was a big sobering experience because people simply realized, look, first, my incomes did not grow as much as I thought because I'm either borrowing on the credit card or I'm borrowing just simply to survive. And you see that in the United States very clearly today, just a parenthetical comment. You saw, for example, a couple of months ago, people in really fancy cars costing 20, 30, $50,000 waiting in line to get free meals. It's, <laughs> it's really, I mean, really bizarre to you when you think of this. So that's one thing. And the second thing which happened was that uh, they realized Look at these guys at the very top, not only on top, top 1%, but top 5 or even top 10. They have had a very good time. So they actually are earning like 10 times more than we are, and we cannot pay our debt. And I think these two elements were actually made people realize something is not right. And at that point, really, the knowledge which existed was basically kind of transferred, actually, or, or became... Um, appreciated by individual people. And I think Piketty's book also played a big role in that, in making the consciousness of the, you know, of inequality much greater. Here on our newspaper, we've been writing about inequality for decades. There are a lot of issues we've been writing about for decades without <laughs> hearing the applause yet. But, but I always thought that inequality was difficult conceptually because inequality in itself is not a problem. If you have someone working 40 hours a week, you say, well, it's fair they earn twice as much as someone working 20 hours a week. If you have Bernie Sanders selling a book about political revolution and he becomes a millionaire, well, he spread ideas to a lot of people. Inequality between me and him, it's okay. But then there's a point where inequality becomes a problem and then you have different kinds of of inequality. So I've always thought that it was conceptually very difficult to go from the analysis of inequality to political mobilization. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I totally agree with you because inequality, when you just mentioned inequality, it's a fairly amorphous thing. You, you don't know, like, what do you want to say by that? First of all, as you said, the justification of many inequalities is you know, ethically quite acceptable. You know, some people want to work harder. Also, there is a luck element, you know, which comes in. Some people have sometimes a luck, some others don't. You know, some people invent things, other people don't. So there is no doubt that actually inequality per se has a good side. Actually, if anything, if I go, can go back to your original question, one of the problem in socialist countries was that actually there was not enough inequality. In other words, I, I have remember my, my uh, Czech friend, a sociologist, who actually studied the entire inequality in, in Czechoslovakia by saying it's demographically determined. So basically, there was nothing for you to do. You just grow, get higher income, and then lower income with pension, end of story. So that's obviously not good. But there are other, and then it is amorphous because sometimes people mean by inequality, inequality which is not justified. Uh, between uh, uh, races, between genders, between people from different parts of the country, or even people globally between different parts of the world. And I'm sure we'll come to that in a minute. So it is a difficult concept. So when I say inequality went up, also you can say, well, how do you measure that? Is it actually, do you look at the share of the top 1% or top 10%? Do you look at the middle class? share? Do you look at the ratio between the top and the bottom? You know, there are millions of ways to, to, to look at that. 
But I agree with you, there is a point uh, which we cannot really pinpoint exactly, but there is certainly a point at which higher inequality becomes counterproductive because essentially people are able to benefit from their background, from their you know, inheritance, from their connections. And they also, especially we can see that in the United States and in Europe also, they actually try to make the rules of the game in their favor because they have money. Yeah, there is a, I think basically our societies accept economic inequality, but we do not accept political inequality. Right. They, they, these two should go together political equality and economic inequality. And it's very hard to pinpoint where that translates into political inequality as well. But then when your books came out and uh, there was another book by Walter Scheidel, I think it was called The Great yes. Level. That was absolutely the most pessimistic book. He just said there are only wars and pandemics and revolutions that, that, that can change inequality. In your book, you distinguish between benign and malign forces. The benign, we know, especially in social democrat countries, because we talk about them all the time. Right. The malign forces are like revolutions, wars, pandemics. So when this pandemic hit, I was thinking, okay, our lives will be fucked up yeah. for the next half year. The poor will be hurt, but at least we'll get to deal with, with the global inequality. I know that was not what you were saying, that they would inevitably lead to greater equality. But that was a chance. I, I thought it was a chance. And how do you think that COVID-19 and inequality has played out? Let me say actually first where I agree and disagree with, with Walter Scheidel. Scheidel is a, is a friend and actually he's an, a phenomenal historian. He's actually, we started correspondence because I was interested in Roman um, uh, history and actually inequality in the Roman empire. So, and then he actually, he worked also, he's an empirical person studying Roman, Roman um, empire. Uh, I actually believe, as you mentioned in, in um, global inequality, I divide forces into benign and malign. I think there is no doubt there are benign forces that can reduce inequality. You know, increase of, of uh, level of education, better skills of the people, higher taxation of capital incomes, higher taxation on inheritance, uh, higher role of trade unions, all the elements that actually people obviously in Denmark and Nordic countries and actually practically in all of Europe know quite well, which were behind the reduction of inequality after World War II. Uh, when it comes to uh, malign elements, uh, there of course it's, it's kind of difficult, you know. I have to, to say that it is true that uh, mass wars, like for example, uh, World War I and World War II, in many cases reduced inequality. I mean, PKT book shows that very clearly. However, it shows that in the case of France, which had military actions on its own territory and large destruction of property and capital. It's not at all true for the United States that the World War I had an impact on inequality. Simply there was no, I mean, physical war there. A sim a similarly, when you look at more recent data that actually two papers recently came out, what was interesting to, to observe is that in the UK during World War I, inequality went down because essentially uh, the government was able to make the rich people pay for the war and they knew that unless they, the rich people pay, you would not be able to deliver food to people who actually had to fight and die for you. In Germany, very interestingly, uh, and actually you see that in the data, uh, there was an ability to make the, the landlords, the Junkers and the rich people pay. 
and actually inequality in Germany went up. So what I want to say by that is that it's not universally the case that the warfare would, would lead to a reduction of inequality. Likewise for the epidemics. Lots of our thinking about the epidemics was really based on the Black Plague of the European 14th century. Well, that epidemic, as you know, killed one third of the population. When it killed so many people, the <laughs> scarcity of labor went up and wages went up. And actually to some extent, the feudal institutions which linked people to their fiefdom, so to actually to land, became much weaker because labor was more valuable. So, you know, uh, today's situation is, is very, very different, if I may say so. You know, it's obviously we don't have one third of the population dying. Luckily, we also don't have labor that is actually linked to land. So, you know, I, I, would, I don't think we can extrapolate from, you know, 1350 to today. <laughs> but now today, Davos, the World Economic Forum, I think is starting yes. uh, online today as an online event, just like you and me. And so we have all these Oxfam analyses that usually come out at this time of year, showing that inequality has increased enormously, that the rich have gotten a lot richer. And we hear every month about Jeff Bezos, Mark Zuckerberg getting richer. Is there anything specific about inequality increasing during COVID-19 that we should take notice of? Um. Yes, you know, Oxfam comes every year with, of course, these alarmist uh, um, reports. Uh, they are true, actually. I was, uh, but this year, particularly true because this year, obviously, is, is very, I mean, to, I mean, previous year, rather, was, was very special. Now, what can we say, actually? On the one hand, there was this increase in top fortunes and an incredibly uh, strong stock market in the United States, which is something we didn't expect at all but which of course was the result of the incredible increase in liquidity, uh, which is also unprecedented. We didn't have the situations that 20% of GDP is suddenly being injected. You know, many of the uh, sort of nostrums of, um, of economists have to be reconsidered now. We have phenomenal increase in liquidity. On the other hand, uh, you know, prices have not moved. And okay, anyway, going back to inequality. So that happened actually at the very top of the, of the income or rather wealth distribution. On the other hand, it is also true, but we don't have the numbers yet. I would be very curious to see when the numbers come out, what the results are actually. Uh, we see also on the other hand that this injection of liquidity in Europe, in the United States, but also in Latin America had often helped poor people, for example, we have some numbers in Brazil that show that actually people at the bottom decile got more money from the uh, liquidity that was actually the government stimulus package than normally they would actually have under the normal conditions. So it is not totally obvious that inequality must have gone up in individual countries. I believe there are some elements for that because of course, as we know, people who were so-called essential workers actually either lost job or had threatened, been threatened to by, by job loss or work less and so on. But I think it's, it's a very mixed picture within countries. So I, I cannot be entirely sure that inequality within countries went up. You know, Angus Deaton recently had a paper about global inequality. He didn't deal with, with uh, within country inequality, but his sort of a prior was that there was an increase in within country inequality. So it is possible, but I cannot be like 100% sure for that. It is a point in, in global inequality that globalization is a very, very strong force. And I would 
guess that you're skeptical about those saying that globalization will be changed dramatically or that globalization will be even halted. But, but on the other hand, we do see that, that they're bringing home supply chains and that the global value chains are changing, that we see kind of a different globalization. How, how do you see this? Do you think we're seeing a dramatic shift in globalization or just small reforms? You know, it is a very good question. I am, uh, let me say what is my current thinking on this. I'm actually, I think that globalization would not be much affected, not even by, by uh, global value chains. And actually, if anything, we see there may be some return, I mean, some return of, of security goods, like for example, PP equipment, people have realized that you cannot depend on only, you know, foreign countries selling you that in the case of crisis. But as you see, actually yesterday there was a report the inflow of foreign investment in China is at historical peak. So, you know, I think I don't think the global value chains would be much affected. Moreover, I believe the globalization of labor would become more important, as we can see it now with you and me discussing this. So if somebody, for example, were to pay me to do some work like uh, 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 online electronically, I can do that. And if I'm actually working from, like, suppose Burma or Laos, I can do it much more cheaply than somebody in Denmark. So I think actually that would accelerate globalization. Uh, what I'm worried, I have to say, is a political element, and that's the, the conflict between China and the United States, which I really see as the beginning of a new uh, Cold War, which is, I think, absolutely unfortunate. And that, of course, can make um, uh, a difference. So that could be that, um, you know, uh, you, you saw that in the US now having a law that you have to buy a uh, much more strict law about buying only American goods. But if you do that, uh, the government contracts, and then there will be really an attempt to reduce uh, Chinese ability to develop high technologies, advanced technologies. So that I think can actually make an influence on globalization. Um, it's a premise of capitalism alone that capitalism is the only game left in town. And there's a beautiful line that I must quote for all Marxists out there saying that you say that we now see the realignment of the superstructure and the infrastructure of society <laughs> to, to put it in other words, that the hearts and minds of people and the, the basic economic structures are in a kind of, of harmony. And I think that's obvious and that you're, you're right about that. And the first consequence is that there is no alternative to capitalism. Right. But on the other hand, I have the sensation now that people are curious about a lot of different varieties of capitalism, that right. Bernie Sanders' socialism is a kind of capitalism as well. Piketty's participatory socialism is yes. capitalism as well. So on the one hand, there is no alternatives outside right. capitalism, but you see a lot of alternatives inside capitalism. And that is kind of an ideological struggle now. How do you see that? Yeah, that's true, actually. And even if I may say so in the end of my book, I do actually allow for a possibility of, a, of change, you know. And uh, uh, however, I'm, my sort of possibility of change is slightly different because I see that it should be driven by two things. First, by the change in the proportion between different factors of production and by the greater efficiency of the new system. If you look at historically, again, from very Marxist perspective, uh, the, the triumph of capitalism was based on a greater efficiency of capitalism. It essentially was able to roll over the previous systems and to become more efficient. I see that you, for example, you have Lincoln there on the top of your, behind you. 
And uh, one of the reasons why Lincoln was so admired by Marx was precisely his ability to actually to destroy basically slavery as a system and to do, to do it with a military force. Because basically what, what Lincoln did from Marx's perspective was destroy a system which was anyway less efficient, which was oppressive, and to use military force to do that. Now, I think actually if capital becomes in the, last, in the next century much more plentiful and labor, as we know, actually the total population probably in the world would stagnate at 10 and a half or 11 billion. We could have a situation a little bit like today in startups where capital is plentiful, but if you have a good idea, you put like 10 other people who actually have good ideas, you could actually borrow that capital so that capitalists would then still remain capitalists, but they would not be managing the process of production. In other words, the workers or actually people who had the idea become uh, uh, managers. And that of course changes. You don't have a hired labor anymore. And in that sense, I think capitalism would look like a different, it would no longer be the capitalism by strict definition. Now in Piketty, his idea is, as you know, is to limit the voting rights of people who have capital so that you cannot go over 10% of voting rights. So that also would of course make, uh, that's, uh, that's type of capitalism would be very different from capitalism today. And you know, that was, a that was a, a utopia in some Scandinavian countries by the labor unions in the 70s and 80s, that you would essentially, that you would, instead of having wage increases, you would have stakes in the company. So the workers would essentially become the capitalists and the owners. The thing is that the workers, they preferred wage increases and more, more holiday. So they didn't want to be capitalists. They, they wanted to be bourgeois. Um, another point here is that that when, when there's this realignment between the ideology and the economic realities of society, between hearts and minds and how we live, then you see how strong the capitalist value system is, that this is how people want to realize themselves. And I was thinking of your book when I saw the inauguration of Joe Biden a week ago, and you saw these pop stars with their signs of wealth, their diamonds, and their gold, and they would be celebrating a new era after one millionaire left the, the White House. And then sometimes I think, do we even have the imagination? Do we have sufficient imagination to challenge the, the basic assumptions of our ideology, a superstructure of society? No, the ideology is like uh, what, what Deng Xiaoping said, you know, uh, <laughs> to be rich is glorious. So, you know, these people that you mentioned, actually, they don't even see any contradiction in that. You know, they have so much absorbed the ethos of capitalism and wealth that they have totally, they, they, don't, they don't realize what's the problem there at all. And, you know, to some extent, I have to, to say to blame the left, actually, because the left has become very uh, sort of um, uh, focused on things which are truly, of course, discriminatory, but they, they are not the end of the story. So in other words, let me, I always like to give this example. If you have, and you do have now in most countries, a gender inequality that the same, um, for the same work and same experience, women are paid less, you know, that used to be much worse. Now it's less, I mean, the, the gap is less. But let's suppose that you totally eliminated the gap. And I think maybe some Nordic countries are close to that, or maybe they have achieved that. You know, it could be that Denmark or Norway or Sweden or Finland have achieved that. That does not mean that you have eliminated inequality. <laughs> because you can have the same distribution 
uh, of, of wages among women that you have among men. And that's actually basically what happens. So your inequality can remain very high. So that's not the end of the story. That's simply a prerequisite towards doing more. And I think very often this is totally forgotten. And in my opinion, it is unfortunate that the left, particularly in the United States, has really become only obsessed with identities as if it were sufficient. And ideologically, as you mentioned, ideologically people don't see any problem with that because their, their um, uh, uh, structure of values is very much aligned with the structure of values that capitalism necessitates in order to grow. So really profit-making in the sphere of production is really reflected totally by this kind of a dictum of becoming rich is glorious, and there is no contradiction between these two. And, and, and maybe that also explains why the global euphoria of Bernie Sanders not being a part of this, he's wearing his own dress. There's yes. one little socialist from another era sitting outside the, this, uh, this, this theater of, uh, of wealth. Well, I'm jumping a little because I have so many questions that I'd love to ask you. When, when I was growing up in the 90s, I think we shared the, the presumption that you mentioned before that capitalism would lead to democracy. And, and we were saying, well, never mind China, they're dictatorship for now. But as soon as they get market reforms, as soon as they experience the delights of capitalism, they will have a middle class. And a middle class in China want the same as a middle class here with us. So we were, and you know, up till 10 years ago, everyone was encouraging from a democratical perspective, growth in China saying, well, never mind, it doesn't look too good for now, but communism is over. They'll end up like us. They want the Danish TV shows and the American TV shows and Jennifer Lopez, and then they want political rights after that. It turned out actually that they developed their own kind of capitalism. And now we see that they have a power over us. So even basketball stars in America, politicians in Denmark are afraid to speak out their mind. This is one very, very brilliant part of capitalism alone is the way you contrast the political capitalism of China and the liberal meritocratic uh, capitalism of, of the West. How do you see the strength between these two systems of capitalism that we have now and that have shattered the illusions of my childhood? Uh, well, let me put it like that, which I think is it is something which is inbuilt in the what we just were saying about capitalism being so successful by creating this uh, internal ethos that we have of desire for greater wealth. It has been so successful, but potentially it has led to the problems that you explained for the following reason. If we can imagine that the Chinese type of capitalism or political capitalism spreads to a few other countries. And actually there are many reasons I didn't mention them because within the uh, uh, discussion in my book, for example, Russia was not discussed because I discussed the political capitalism in countries that were colonized and had to be liberated from Western uh, sort of colonizers. So Russia did not fit there, but they didn't, so I didn't discuss Russia. But Russia has a political capitalism as well. There are other countries that have it, you know, I mentioned in the book, countries like Vietnam, Laos, uh, Burma, um, Angola, Algeria, Ethiopia, and so forth. You can even argue that in Europe, for example, I think that actually Serbia, my own country, is close to political capitalism. Uh, Hungary is somewhat close. Uh, Turkey is very close. So then the question becomes the following. Let's suppose for the sake of the argument that such countries through technocratic management 
and they might have multi-party systems, which really don't matter. They are able to actually grow faster. If they grow faster, that, that, that desire for wealth, which is inbuilt in us, would actually lead us to espouse the system which is, which is economically more efficient. So if one day people from China are much richer than Europeans, come to Europe as they are coming now, and they would actually come uh, in greater numbers, they show that they are richer, they buy houses, they, you know, they have better, whatever it is, cars or airplanes in those days. Uh, we would actually tend to take that system because we see the advantages of that system. So that was also, in my own opinion, one of the reasons for the fall of communism was inability to economically compete with capitalism. So if the liberal capitalism falls behind political capitalism economically, there would be a desire among people because precisely of this ethos of money-making that we have to emulate political capitalism. So really I see that the race between the two of them as being economic race between the two of them. But you also, you, in the book, you actually, because it's a very, it's a very strong juxtaposition. And I, I, I grew up in the West knowing that we would always be superior. And, and as a leftist, you regretted it, but you knew that was how it would be. So when I was reading your book, I was saying, well, they're almost equal here. But then in the end you say, actually there are some advantages to, to democratic capitalism. What are they? Yeah, they're obvious. From the economic perspective. You know, I have to make very clear my opinion, for example, on democracy. I see democracy essentially as a tool. Uh, uh, you know, many people see democracy as a value in itself. I think there is something which is true to that. But I, I also think that people, because of the reasons that I just explained, that people are willing to trade off parts of democracy or freedom in order to achieve greater income or wealth. So I see democracy then as being a tool. Now that tool can be very efficient for you know, many reasons that are again known, is that actually if you make huge mistakes in democracy by selecting a wrong candidate or having wrong policy, you can actually adjust it because simply you have a means People have a means to adjust that by selecting different types of policies. I'm not only talking about Trump now. I'm just talking, for example, if you overtax somebody or part of the population, and then you realize it's actually bad for economic growth, the next period when you have the elections, you can reduce taxation and actually improve things. Or the opposite. You might have too low taxes and you want to increase taxes. In an in authoritarian system, it is much more difficult. Once you have a <laughs> setup there, you really do not have this feedback function from people hmm. to the uh, rulers, which is as clear as in the case of democracy. So that was a, one of the reasons that I see that democracy has an advantage. And you know, there are some studies that show, for example, that the, the level of economic outcomes in democracy is much more uh, restricted in the sense that countries are not so much different in terms of level of economic um, you know, uh, growth rate compared to, to authoritarian systems where you can actually end up with China, but you can also be a Congo, you know, so because there is no feedback. So that was, for, in my opinion, one of the big advantages of democracy in generating stable economic growth. Mm -hmm. I have one last question for you, Branko. I actually have 1,000 questions for you. Yeah, no, Rune, we could go on. <laughs> <laughs> but I only have time for one. In the book, Capitalism Alone, you say that 
capitalism has now invaded all spheres of life. Right. So capitalism has expanded. So now our privacy, our leisure, Airbnb, Uber, everything is capitalism. Yeah. But I have, and of course that is correct. And you see with the tech giants that if our data, the way we breathe, our heartbeats, everything is capitalism. But I have the sensation that, that it's not just capitalism invading other, other spheres of life, they are invading capitalism as well. So, so that within a business like our company, you have to say, how are people feeling psychologically? How are they feeling emotionally? And that is not just enhancing their performance. That is also a kind of humanizing of capitalism at the same time. Or you could say, we have Amazon, this fucked up bookstore that's conquering the whole world. And no matter what goes wrong, they'll just get richer and richer. And he even owns the Washington Post now. What a disgrace to the, to the free world. But at the same time, Amazon, it's a place where I can read your book. We translate it, we put it out to. So there are always forces yeah. released by capitalism that are not capitalist and that will counter capitalist on all levels. What do you think of that? That criticism. <laughs> Let me just say for the, I'm Amazon that I, of course, I agree with you. I was actually thinking recently when I was looking at my, uh, you know, statement, credit, uh, you know, uh, credit card statement. I said, well, really, uh, because he lives in Washington, uh, the owner, the Jeff Bezos, I really should not be paying my statement anymore. I should just take a check and bring it to, over to him, you know, to his house, walk over to his house and give it to him. Because practically everything on my credit statement was Amazon, a food, books, uh, buying socks, everything is Amazon. So that's, that's quite extraordinary, the, the power. And then, of course, another thing is, of course, the power that they have now in the media. You know, for example, the, also the Atlantic magazine is also owned by, uh, by one of the richest people in the world. So basically, they have spread into the media and that's, they, it finds no sort of, there is no fighting back against, against that. Um, but... Um, uh, that humanization of capitalism is, is a good point. And I agree that actually in many cases, that's the case. But I, I'm really skeptical about, uh, we almost were going to sound like Davos, you know, in this Davos talks about, uh, uh, about uh, stakeholders and how they really love their workers and all of that. I think it's, yes, up to a certain point. But when it becomes a choice between making more money for shareholders and, or yourself and giving more money to workers, of course, you decide to do the, the job of the shareholders. So I'm not really convinced by that. I agree that there are some improvements. Obviously, we are not the 19th century today, but I do believe that eventually Friedman was right is that essentially the, the role of the capitalist enterprise is to make money for the shareholders. And um, they would do this stakeholder stuff as long as it actually is good for their business, but not the point further. Well, thank you so very, very much for uh, answering all the questions and for your books and your work, your great inspiration for us. And you make our journalism better and our lives more fun, at least. Thank you very much, Branko. Thank you so much. It was really a pleasure. And I hope to actually see you like uh, in vivo so that we can actually have this conversation in Copenhagen. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Bye bye. Det var min samtale med Branko Milanovic. Hvis man gerne vil vide mere om det Branko fortalte om i interviewet, så kan jeg anbefale at man køber hans bog 
global ulighed. Og det er så heldigt, at den er oversat til dansk. Og det er så endnu mere heldigt, at den er oversat til dansk af informationsforlag. Og man kan faktisk få den tilsendt for 230 kroner. Ja, det er rigtigt. Det er ikke noget teori, det er et tilbud. Det er Porto Plus referenceværk inden for globaliseringslitteraturen for 230 kroner. Og hvis det ikke er nok, og det ved jeg af erfaring, der er mange, der vil have mere end det, så må man gå ind på www.informationen.dk-prøv nu. Gå lige derind, var og tegn et gratis abonnement for en måned. Man får de vidunderlige printaviser fredag og lørdag. En ven for livet, som de siger derude. Man får de daglige internetnyhedsbreve adgang til hele vores skatkammer af digital journalistik. En kammerat for altid, som de siger. Og i næste uge bliver det endnu sjovere, for der skal jeg tale med den første rigtige konservative i vores langsomme samtaler. Og det er ikke, fordi jeg ikke har prøvet at få fat i rigtig mange konservative amerikanere, men de har alle sammen sagt nej. Der er bare en grund til, at jeg fik fat i Christopher Caldwell, og den er, at han endte hos mig for 15 år siden til en helt vild julefrokost. En fuldstændig vanvittig julefrokost. Og han endte hos mig, fordi jeg har en ven, der er konservativ, som havde ham med. Jeg vil ikke sige mere nu, men blot sige, at den bedste vej til de konservative amerikaners hjerte, det er at holde en helt vild dansk julefrokost. Så vender de tilbage 15 år senere.